Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. About uh, two weeks, about uh, until Election Day. This first half hour, we continue our series of conversations with Iowa congressional candidates. A reminder that all of Iowa's major party congressional candidates and gubernatorial candidates have been invited to share their views here on River to River. Joining us this half hour, Ryan Melton. He's the Democratic candidate challenging challenging incumbent Republican Congressman Randy Feenstra, a Republican in Iowa's 4th District, and the 4th District covering the, well, it's by far the largest of Iowa's four congressional districts, the northwest corner of Iowa, but also stretching down to include Ames, uh, Mason City, Sioux City, of course, in the northwest corner. Uh, Ryan Melton's work has included the Bernie Sanders campaign, among others. Uh, he studied political scientists, science at Iowa State, and uh, we welcome him for this uh, half hour. Ryan Melton, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I want to throw in a note here. We've requested an interview with um, Representative Feenstra, but uh, have not heard a response back from his campaign. Ryan Melton, you're running in a district where conservative voters far outnumber liberal ones uh, in terms of registration. Make your case for having, uh, for the constituents there, having you, a Democrat, represent uh, the 4th District instead of Randy Feenstra. What are your top issues? Well, I mean, there's a a lot of uh, policy concerns that I refer to quite often because there's much to work on. But uh, as far as the issues that are unifying that span uh, and ignore uh, political affiliation, uh, you know, number one has been uh, public education. Uh, You know, I I pre-announce my events on my social media so I get plenty of Republicans, Libertarians and Independents to join me at my events. And public education uh, and the concerns uh, that uh, residents of the district have, regardless of political affiliation, come up all the time uh, with this big push of Governor Reynolds, not just for flat tax policy, but uh, to pull public money out of schools to fund private school vouchers. That that has alarmed a lot of people. Um, On top of that, my opponent uh, is an advocate of making the Trump tax cuts permanent. Uh, So this regressive tax policy that we're already seeing has led in in part to an underfunding of our public schools. A lot of people are really concerned that's going to amplify the problems uh, that we're seeing with public education uh, just due to the lack of underfunding um, without even getting into the vilification of public school teachers that we're seeing um, from politicians. You know, people in rural Iowa know that if their community loses their public school, it makes it much harder for their community to thrive. So that's number one. Number two, carbon capture pipelines. Um, let, 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 know, let, I, me, let me jump in there before you yeah, want to go to the environment sure. here. Here, Let me follow yeah. up on education, because as a, uh, a representative in the U.S. House, um, some may wonder what role does the federal government play in public education policy, because usually that's left uh, to counties, uh, school districts, and increasingly in the past few years, uh, our, our governor and legislature have played a role there. So what what role would you, as a U.S. representative, uh, be able to play in in uh, reshaping public education as, as you've described? Sure. Uh, it's a good question. I mean, there certainly is a role uh, for a federal elected official 
uh, when it comes to public education uh, th- that often is uh, primarily funded and facilitated at the state and local level. Um, you know, for example, um, I've spoken to a number of people within the ISEA here in the state who um, recall a time where we had more robust federal funding um, for mental health care programs in our public schools. Um, when they recall a time fondly when there was more funding for after-school programs, there was more funding um, for other avenues through which we can take care of our kids at the public school level, but were funded uh, by federal programs. There's uh, grants programs that the federal government can um, uh, can push through that can help public schools in a wide variety of different ways. Um, the American Recovery Act uh, during COVID had a, a, a good chunk of financing for public education that was um, uh, a federally facilitated um, initially. So there, there are still a number of ways that the federal government uh, can play a role as far as us having a more robust public education system. I think the other thing, too, is, is we're seeing uh, quite often in red states and more conservative states, this underfunding issue of public education as more and more states um, uh, are seeing pushes by governors on the Republican side who are pushing for an increase in the uh, use of public funds to fund private school vouchers. This is not just an Iowa concern. Um, So I I would not be alone in the U.S. House trying to find ways to um, smooth out those rough edges, those um, distinct variations and gaps from one state to another as far as funding for public education uh, with the use of federal funds. So there are a number of things that a federally elected official could do to help in that space. Mm -hmm. Ryan, before we uh, before we run out of time, I wanted to get to get listeners uh, your views on a number of key issues in, in voters' minds yep. across the country and in here in Iowa. Uh, President Biden, of course, vowing to codify Roe um, if more Democratic senators and are elected and if the Democrats hold on to the House. What abortion protections would you support at a federal level? Yeah, I agree uh, that we need to codify uh, reproductive rights protections. I I am uh, pro-choice. You know, to me, I I think codifying Roe is um, one way to look at it. I personally am a believer that we need an equal rights amendment. Um, I'm sure you're probably familiar with uh, congressional legislation uh, that facilitated the the equal rights amendment back in the 70s, but they put certain deadlines on it. And it's uh, up for legal debate as to whether all the states that have ratified um, that amendment um, have hit uh, the required legal thresholds for it to become our next amendment. Um, but we have a number of state ERAs um, that have proven quite effective in protecting reproductive rights. And so, um, you know, I, I would definitely be a fan of going uh, at the deeper root of this issue, the fact that our U.S. Constitution um, still doesn't protect ultimately against discrimination uh, based on sex or gender, and the Equal Rights Amendment would do that. So, But definitely, we need to codify reproductive rights uh, protections without question. Okay, let's talk about the environment, uh, climate change. Um, as an ag state um, um, House uh, representative, if you would be elected, uh, for instance, what's your stance on the carbon sequestration pipelines proposed, three of them up to yeah. cross Iowa, and, and the use of eminent domain to complete them? Yeah, this is one of the other issues I was going to talk about that are unifying Iowans, regardless of political affiliation. I've been opposed to the use of eminent domain uh, to take uh, land from private landowners away uh, to lay these pipelines that would enrich private corporations. 
um, not only because I don't believe that's a fair use of eminent domain, uh, but also for a number of other reasons. I, I think these projects would marry us to the status quo, and the status quo is clearly not working when it comes to climate change mitigation. Um, and I think it would put an undue burden on the shoulders of our rural emergency management personnel. Um, you know, your listeners, if you, they wanted to Google what happened in Mississippi in 2020 when it came to a carbon capture pipeline fracture and the impact that had on that community um, and the fact that the emergency management personnel said they were lucky, even though many went to the hospital, because if the wind was blowing a different direction, mm -hmm. it would have been a much worse result. So I, I'm definitely opposed to the use of eminent domain for carbon capture pipeline projects. And I think that the overall technology, um, many carbon sequestration plans have opened and closed because they often under deliver on their promises. Um, I think we need to be more bold in our actions. I think we need to more robustly invest in wind and solar energy. Uh, we need to ramp up the um, amount of electrification that our electricity grid can accommodate. And we need to invest more in next-gen uh, renewable fuel. Um, so those would be my priorities. Mm -hmm. How does Iowa's biofuel industry, very large in the meantime, ethanol industry, fit into carbon reduction goals towards uh, stemming uh, climate change? Uh, of course, that next generation of, of power, um, well, uh, the Iowa biofuel industry worried about that. So, so what would be your direction there? Yeah. What do you say to those whose jobs rely on the ethanol industry here in Iowa? Well, you know, corn ethanol is certainly one tool uh, that we need to maintain in a much more diversified toolkit. Uh, we need to increase diversification here when it comes to the climate change conversation. Um, but but I'll say I'll say this, though. I mean, while, yes, um, you know, it is true that as electrification ramps up, um, there are going to be transportation sectors that are going to be harder to electrify. Um, and corn ethanol has a place there. Um, but we also need to be honest actors when we're running for public office. I, I am leery, uh, wary of marrying our, our corn growers to um, a business mar uh, model, a, a series of markets when it comes to corn ethanol um, that are going to face more and more pressures and reductions over time um, because of this ramp up in electrification. We have uh, elect uh, we have vehicle manufacturers saying that um, you know their vehicle fleets are going to be electrified up to 50% in the next decade or two. Um, so I think we need to transition our focus towards next generation renewable fuel, and we need to spend much more money on trade development and market development for our corn growers and our farmers on the ground, um, so they can be tapped into markets that are much more sustainable ecologically and economically. We haven't even talked about. The fact we're still having really pressing concerns as far as unsustainable topsoil erosion and waterway pollution. And so um, I've talked to many corn growers on the ground that in the short term are grateful for the economic benefits that corn ethanol has brought them. But they know, they see what's coming, that these markets are going to reduce in size over time. And they want politicians that are going to help them transition to a more sustainable model ecologically and economically. If you've just joined us, Ryan Melton is my guest this half hour, Democratic candidate challenging incumbent GOP Congressman Randy Feenstra in Iowa's uh, 4th District for the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, you mentioned water quality. How can the federal government incentivize or would you say penalize farmers uh, to support the goal of improving water quality in the state? And, of course, we've reported here the consequences uh, downstream, the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Which is more effective, penalizing or incentivizing? 
Well, I don't think it's uh, it's a simple either or. I, I am certainly um, not um, a proponent of over-regulating to the points where we just drive farmers off the land. I mean, we've already lost um, a significant number of farmers and we've lost a significant uh, number of farm workers. And if we want to build a more sustainable ag system, we need more farmers and we need more farm workers. And so um, I don't think over-regulation is going to do the trick because you're just going to lose more farmers. Um, I, I think you need to find a proper balance. Um, I think, you know, personally, I think we need to incentivize our trans- the transition of our farmers to a more sustainable model, whether that be through the farm bill uh, that's under debate right now. Um, making sure that we tie um, federal funding with programs that help farmers transition to a more sustainable model, including um, implementing uh, upgrades in technology um, and land use practices that help mitigate impacts to waterways. Um, you, you need to have a balance there, no question, being very careful to not um, you know, drive farmers off the land because that certainly is counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Inflation, according to polls, the number one concern among many Americans and Iowans. What policy would you do? How would yours be different to uh, address inflation? Yeah, I mean, so when you look at um, the data we have out there, it is clear that corporate America has seen record profits during this time of inflation. So there is no question um, in my mind that corporate America um, in large part has taken advantage of the inflationary environment um, to break in profit um, uh, that is harming us on the ground. So I think you need to increase the, the, uh, the strength and number of mechanisms through which corporate America is responsive to the needs of the people. I think one way you do that is you implement a windfall tax on excessive profit during times of inflation. Um, Look, you know, if if a corporation was purposely increasing prices, uh, knowing that that was well above their normal profit margin um, and it wasn't needed, um, you know, if there was purposeful action on that part, a windfall tax would help there. But there are other situations in the corporate context where you don't know ultimately what the costs will be as far as input and output um, for a particular um, financial uh, time frame. You may get more profit than anticipated as you're just you know, dealing with the uncertainties, but a windfall tax would have the same impact, saying, okay, well, you had an awful lot of profit here during this time of excessive inflation. Um, we're going to take some of that back and help the people on the ground. Um, who saw the impact of higher prices. So that's number one. I think number two, we have a really big problem with corporate consolidation in our country, driven in large part by the fact that we have such a regressive tax policy that continues to make the wealthy wealthier at our expense and continues to amplify the wealth gap. We're seeing that's worse now than it's ever been. So we need to work on making our tax policy more progressive. Um, And we, you know, we do have antitrust Uh, legislation on the books that uh, people are just hesitant to use. But, um, for example, in the ag context, you know, we're seeing, um, uh, you know, JBS and Smithfield, a number um, of meat packers um, who um, were under lawsuit for price fixing, for price colluding. And we're seeing that in a wide variety of different sectors right now. Um, And the final thing I'll say, too, is it's, it's existential in nature. I mean, earlier this year, we were talking about whether or not we'd be able to feed our babies with the uh, baby formula supply crisis just because one plant went offline. Um, and that shows you the problem with market, uh, with, with corporate consolidation um, of power in our markets. We need to do a much better job of having more diverse, robust supply chains. 
And we need to do a much better job of effectively funding our public health infrastructure because, unfortunately, the COVID um, pandemic is not going to be the last pandemic we're going to deal with. And we saw how disruptive it was. And we need to build more things here at home. Uh, we, we need to be less reliant um, on international manufacturing um, in the cases of pandemic because we saw the, the havoc that wreaked as well. About five minutes left in this live conversation with Ryan Melton, challenging GOP Congressman Randy Feenster in Iowa's 4th uh, District. Um, uh, quickly, if we may, uh, you have been criticized, uh, Ryan Melton, by Republicans for your lack of experience, is what they say. Uh, here's your chance. So what do you point to as experience that qualifies you to be a U.S. congressman? I have a bachelor's in history and political science from Iowa State, a master's in U.S. history from Kansas University, um, and I run a team of 19 at a Fortune 100 company. So I've been uh, at the top of the ladder in uh, academia and in the corporate world. Um, you know, uh, and I, you know what, I mean, you take a look at what I've done this year, what we've accomplished this year. Um, I, it's never been a life ambition of mine to run for public office, even though I've been asked to from time to time. Um, I decided to run because there was a real risk that a Democrat was not going to be on the ballot um, in this race. And I felt that was absolutely unconscionable in the age of anti-democracy and Trumpism that we're seeing right now. Um, But throughout the year, uh, I've put myself up uh, to the test. I've I've opened myself up to public scrutiny over and over and over again, hundreds of open forum events that were pre-advertised to the general public. Uh, I've never turned down an interview. Um, There's a lot of tape on me out there. Um, people know who I am and people that have looked into me, trust me, um, look into my FEC filings. I'm not a corporate politician. Um, I think my experience has helped me really well on the campaign trail. I feel like I belong. In fact, I know I belong. Um, and a number of people who didn't know who I was in January because I don't initially didn't initially have the name recognition or pedigree. And I'm not a wealthy person. I don't know wealthy people. Um, so those questions early on were quick, were quickly answered when people got to know who I was in the campaign trail. So, um, the people that know me, the people that have taken the time to study me know um, that I'm an intelligent person. I'm an honest, er- earnest, open person um, that's not owned unduly by corporate interests. And so um, the people that know me trust me. Uh, let's talk about the threat to democracy. You've seen surely the recent polls showing that while voters um, say maintaining our democracy is a concern, it's not their top concern. Where does it rank for you as a priority? Where would it rank for you as a U.S. congressman? Uh, it's a top priority for me. I mean, January 6th was one of the reasons why I decided to run, um, especially considering the fact that my opponent, um, who doesn't open himself up to public scrutiny, as you said, declined your request and also is the only congressional candidate in the state. He ha- just to clarify, has not has not answered yeah. our request, just to clarify. Yes, yep, go ahead. Thank you for that. Uh, but he has refused the debate uh, with me. Um, but, you know, this January 6th concern is amplified by the fact that my opponent um, called the insurrectionists, wonderful people that just got carried away, voted against the January 6th committee, um, and still brags about the endorsement he received from Donald Trump. So um, it's, a, it's a big issue. You know, having a master's in U.S. history, I could talk to you all day, every day about the many good things uh, that we've uh, created for the people here through um, our representative democracy. Um, that mechanism is under immense threat right now. And once we lose that ability to fight the good fight for the people, um, we're, we're in a really, really tenuous position here in our country. And so um, at one time, our representative democracy was sacrosanct. It wasn't, it wasn't up for debate. Um, and now it seems like it's all up in the air right now. And so we need people who normally don't get involved um, to get involved. And that's uh, one of the big reasons why I'm running.
Okay, immigration, let's touch on that quickly. Immigration and our southern border crisis. Recently, the U.S. reaching 2 million migrants arrested this year at the southern border. That's the most ever. Uh, everyone in Congress thinks immigration system in the U.S. is broken. Uh, each well, each party blames the other. Um, and this is, of course, tied with uh, the Iowa. Even though we don't have a border, a southern uh, border, we, we do use a lot of immigration uh, migrant workers here. So, so uh, how, how well do you think President Biden is, is doing a good job of protecting our southern border, first of all? Well, I, I think it's hard to do that without an immigration reform bill. Um, and so, I, I mean, well, when you say um, that a number that, that the high number of uh, immigrants that have been apprehended, I mean, clearly there is a robust system down there um, to um, to apprehend so many. Um, but regardless, I agree that it's a broken system. Um, and we've been trying um, to get our representatives in Congress to pass an immigration reform bill for decades now. Um, it often feels like, uh, you know, Republicans like to have this big gaping wound here so that they can exploit it for political points instead of actually resolving it. Well, much the same as they have been treating inflation with all the bills they voted against that would help uh, reduce uh, the impacts of inflation in our country. Um, so there's no question we need to prioritize the passage of an immigration reform bill. Yes, I think it's important uh, that we um, are concerned about domestic security, so we still need to maintain our presence at the border, obviously. But I think we need to have a more robust immigrant worker program that is official, um, that's above board, that we can keep track of. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, for example, up here in Northwest Iowa, in the Fourth District, um, we have plenty, plenty uh, of uh, people that run small businesses, um, farms that say we would love the additional. Uh, labor. Uh, there's there's a big labor shortage concern um, in many of our communities. And so um, I've had people say, well, you know, when uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida um, sent um, a number of migrants to Martha's Vineyard, you know, who said we would happily have accepted them here because we need people to work and uh, we'd be happy mm-hmm. to align uh, them with work opportunities. So um, and obviously that, that sounds reasonable to me. Uh, less than a minute here, actually 30 seconds, uh, to, to name your three top legislative congressional priorities as a freshman congressman. Uh, what would you um, what would you like to focus on, first of all, out of the gate, very quickly? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think number one um, is uh, saving and strengthening our representative democracy. I'm not naive enough to think our representative democracy is perfect, but we need to save it and strengthen it. Uh, number two, codifying reproductive rights, uh, no question about it. Um, uh, number three, it's tough to just limit to three because there's so many. Um, but, you know, I right. believe the scientific when they tell us that climate change is an existential crisis. So we need to do, take bold action on that front. Ryan Melton, thank you very much. Democratic candidate um, for the U.S. House of Representatives in uh, Iowa's 4th District. Ryan Melton, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much. We'll be back to talk about brain injuries and depression. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. 
There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. We're back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Chances are depression has touched you or a loved one. Uh, Let's spend this half hour focusing on brain research to do with clinical depression. A new study has found distinct brain networks associated with risk and with resilience in depression, also shedding more light on how brain injuries correlate with depression. My guest this half hour, psychiatrist Dr. Nicholas Trapp. He's a University of Iowa assistant professor of psychiatry and the lead author of the study I just referred to. Dr. Trapp, welcome to the program. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. This is a large-scale study led by researchers with University of Iowa Healthcare, expanding on some previous findings. Before we get to this study, this specific study, if we may, uh, give us some background on what led up to this study and your focus of this study. Yeah, sure. So the objective of this study was to take this really rich resource we have uh, at the University of Iowa uh, called the Iowa Brain Lesion Registry, um, and it's building on decades of research that has happened uh, at the University of Iowa and at other institutions, really looking for brain correlates of different behavioral symptoms, uh, in this case, specifically depression. And so there's been studies, uh, again, um, by some people in the Department of Psychiatry and in Neuropsychology and Neurology here at Iowa that have looked at this question to see, can we identify specific areas of the brain that, you know, if they're damaged, injured, or lesioned, um, might put you at a higher risk uh, for having depressive symptoms after the lesion. Give us an overview of what you looked at in this study. You did identify two distinct brain works, networks, I understand. Yeah, correct. So again, um, we have this very rich resource here at Iowa, probably uh, one of the largest lesion registries in the world, um, where we're able to look at these correlations between different symptoms. And so uh, what we found with this study was we we took um, over 500 uh, patients um, in the University of Iowa system that had uh, some type of brain lesion, again, from a stroke or other cause, traumatic brain injury. Uh, and we tried to correlate that using some artificial intelligence uh, metrics uh, with specific post-stroke uh, or post-lesion depressive bur- symptom burden. And so uh, we found some areas of the brain, uh, as you mentioned, that are associated with a higher depressive symptom burden after the injury, and also, very interestingly, some areas of the brain that after the lesion were associated with less report of depression. Mm, so actually, just to touch on it, that's fascinating. You could, you could have a brain injury or a, a lesion that would actually lessen depressive symptom, symptoms? So that's the correlation we did find in this study. As to exactly what that means, that's something we're still uh, you know, trying to work on and parse out. Obviously, that could mean that lesioning that area does have um, you know, potential for therapeutic benefit for um, you know, depressive symptoms. It could also mean that it just causes people to be less aware of depressive symptoms uh, or to report symptoms less. Uh, so there are some complications with that association, but I would say it's very uh, exciting and promising and, and potentially uh, lends um, some interesting insights into the potential pathophysiology of depression as an illness. 
Back to the other uh, key takeaways uh, from this study. I understand you use neuroimaging uh, to look at different these different brain networks and sort of how they communicate with each other. Talk about that. Yeah, sure. So, so there's kind of looking at the structural brain, which is um, lesions to specific areas, you know, in the frontal cortex or other regions. Uh, but then also we know a lot more um, now than we might have known 20, 30, 40 years ago about brain networks, which are areas of the brain uh, that talk to each other. They're not necessarily areas that are directly near each other in the brain. And these different networks, mm-hmm. there's been some that have been described uh, repeatedly in the literature now, are associated with specific cognitive functions. And so, uh, for example, one is called, probably one of the best known is something called the default mode network, which is uh, areas of the brain that are active when a person is at rest. It's kind of a daydreaming network, and a network that's involved with self-introspection. Um, and then there's other networks that are involved in attention, other, other cognitive processes. And so not only did we find these lesions... Um, were associated with specific regions of the brain, but those regions actually all lined up to uh, to specific brain networks, and it gives us again maybe a deeper understanding of um, you know beyond just these structural lesions, which people have looked at for decades and have struggled to find uh, correlations between depression and a specific brain region. Maybe this is a network phenomenon, and I think that's really exciting, especially um, because it really lends credence to the idea that depression is a, a brain illness. And uh, I think, uh, you know, helps to destigmatize it in some sense. Mm-hmm. Talk more about the positive takeaways from the, the study results. Uh, what do you look to hear and, and talk to people who may suffer from clinical depression, may have loved ones who suffer? Well, what, are the, what are the direct things that should be noted by those listening who, who suffer in those ways? Sure. So like I mentioned, this was a study of people who had a brain lesion and then and then uh, developed a depressive symptoms after the lesion. Um, so it is a, a correlative study in a in a in a sample that has a an injury leading to their depression. However, um, from what we know about pathophysiology of depression, there are some uh, correlates between those type of depressive episodes and depressive episodes that might occur spontaneously um, due to other other causes or genetic origins. And uh, so I think this, uh, again, it, it kind of gives us a sense. This is a, a brain illness. This is, um, uh, I think, a an illness that people should take very seriously and, and seek treatment for. Um, and uh, also it kind of gives us a sense of the fact that there, there may be targeted strategies we can use uh, to specific areas um, it, that we might be able to use to increase or decrease activity in the brain and, and potentially develop therapeutic targets down the road. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us uh, this half hour, talking live with University of Iowa psychiatrist Dr. Nicholas Trapp. He's the lead author of a, a new study which we've been di- discussing on um, brain injury, um, depression, um, the networks uh, in the brain having to do with um, risk and resilience uh, for uh, depression. Uh, l- let's talk about those therapies because, um, you know, sure you're aware, of course, when we discuss in our families, among loved ones, among friends, uh, grappling with depression, how to remedy it, how to improve the state of the person. Uh, Pharmacological remedies, therapies are most often um, mentioned, but uh, your expertise lies with brain stimulation, I understand. Uh, Talk about the difference uh, there and, and what you actually do. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so my, uh, I guess part of my work is working with neuroscience research, working with these patients uh, in the Iowa Lesion Registry with a great team of people, including Aaron Bose and Dan Trinnell and Joel Bruss. Um, and Ken Manzel, who all helped uh, immense, immensely with that study. Uh, but And then my clinical aspect of my job is is doing uh, treatments, which are procedural-based techniques uh, for treating psychiatric illnesses. And this is kind of a new branch of therapeutics uh, we use in psychiatry. It's been uh, deemed interventional psychiatry or falls under the umbrella of this new, uh, I'd say, subspecialty within psychiatry called interventional psychiatry. And uh, most people, I think, have heard of psychotherapy treatments, uh, medication-based treatments, which very much have their place and are, and are effective um, for different types of depression, mood disorders. However, there's this new arm of treatments that has really come around, I'd say, in, in the last couple decades uh, using, uh, I guess, the one we use most frequently, something called transcranial magnetic stimulation. But there's um, several other treatments that uh, we use uh, that basically use different physical properties of magnetics and uh, electrical energy to stimulate different regions of the brain. Um, and so this ties again back to that um, the research that we're doing where these uh, these treatments allow us to potentially uh, increase activity or inhibit activity in different regions of the brain to try to repair um, or modulate uh, these um, damaged brain networks. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you talk about that, you call it new, but Talk about how it's related to what I'll just call this a dark history of trying to, um, to uh, well, I'll just name them, uh, lobotomies, shock therapy. Um, talk about how these new therapies relate or do not relate to, to, to those uh, older therapies. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. There has been kind of a dark history in psychiatry, and I, I think uh, immediately people throw out all of that research and all of that um kind of clinical experience from 50, 60, 70 years ago where uh, they they did things like uh, prefrontal lobotomies, which is, you know, using a sharp metal probe to uh, damage the white matter tracts in the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Um, and these, these procedures had a lot of side effects and a lot of problems, despite um, the researchers at that time reporting good results. And it kind of led to, I think, some mistrust in the field of psychiatry. Um, and so, you know, these areas of the brain are certainly implicated in depression. Um, and so I think there there is uh, some, uh, I guess, important insights to gather from that, that you know, I'd say large tragedy that occurred in psychiatry. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we can potentially use these newer therapies to do uh, different types of brain modulation that don't necessarily require causing a lesion in the brain. Uh, to activate or deactivate these brain structures and, and potentially get the therapeutic benefits without the side effects. Um, and I will also say, as I'm a, an electroconvulsive therapy psychiatrist, that uh, I would not lump electroconvulsive therapy in with uh, prefrontal lobotomy. Electroconvulsive therapy is a treatment that mm. actually has uh, very good efficacy in, in very treatment-resistant depression and other conditions such as catatonia. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think they, they do get lumped together for various regions, reasons, including, uh, uh, I think, some things that have um, been put out in the media in the past uh, conflating them. Yeah. But I, I view them very differently. How, how, how is that different than magnetic stim- using magnet, magnetic stimulation? Yes, yeah, so it's a really good question. Um, so magnetic stimulation is very nice in the sense that uh, we don't have to put a person under anesthesia. So 
Uh, ECT or electroconvulsive therapy requires anesthesia. People have to be put asleep. Uh, we use electrical energy to induce a seizure that's generalized in the brain, uh, which is a very kind of non-focal way of modulating the brain. Uh, whereas with transcranial magnetic stimulation, these magnetic uh, treatments, we can actually do them non-invasively. They don't require um, any anesthesia, so the person can come into the clinic uh, and receive these. And I've actually tried this on myself <laughs> just because I, I prescribe it for patients. And, uh, you know, it's it feels like a tapping on the head. People have varying degrees of, uh, I'd say, some it's, discomfort with that, but it's it's very well tolerated. Yeah, what is it? What is the device? What does the device look like? I'm, I'm worried, concerned that people at home will take a magnet and start. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, so, crani- craniums. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, misadventures people can get into, and I would not recommend trying uh, to you know create these things on on your own. These are uh, devices that cost tens of thousands of dollars and are used in a controlled setting. Uh, but it it looks basically uh, like a big waffle iron that has uh, a coil in it, electrical coil, and you pass. Uh, kind of pulses of electrical energy into that coil, which in, induces a magnetic field. And the nice thing is magnet, magnetic fields can pass right through the skull and the scalp into the brain. So we don't have to worry about um, trying to inject electrical energy, which, you know, causes muscle contractions and other side effects. Do, do people notice anything immediately? I know the brain doesn't have any sort of sensory part of it, but but do people notice different thoughts or any difference right when that um, magnets, the magnets are doing their thing? So it depends, kind of going back to the research, it depends on what area of the brain we're stimulating. So you can stimulate areas of the brain um, such as the motor cortex or the visual cortex and induce an immediate uh, body movement or a flash in vision. Um, However, these areas of the brain that are more complex, such as the prefrontal cortex regions that are um, implicated in depression, uh, these aren't areas that you can modulate um, in a single day. I will say we're, we're developing treatments that, that in some cases in, in research studies are working within a week, which is extremely exciting. Um, and there's also other fast-acting treatments like esketamine that we offer at Iowa that, that uh, are very fast-acting. But in general, it's kind of like a, an exercise for the brain. So it's something you have to do uh, daily, like a, a standard treatment course is four to six weeks of daily therapy and uh, it induces modulatory changes over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. How, how does a clinical psychiatrist choose the type of therapy, um, pharmacological or the types you've just been describing, the stimulation, one way or another? Yeah, so I guess that's that's why uh, they come to see us, is we, we often help with making that decision. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that decision. Some of it is patient preference. Some of it is other comorbidities the patient might have that might put them at a higher risk for certain procedures um, than others. Uh, and then there's obviously, uh, you know, comorbidities the patient may experience that might make them a better candidate for certain treatments than others. Um, sometimes we'll try to use the the side effects of a treatment to somebody's benefit, such as like a sleep-inducing medication for somebody with insomnia. So uh, it's a very complex uh, question I don't think I can answer in in 25 minutes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What about a short course or a few sentences on what I understand is the main thing that you treat clinically, uh, treatment-resistant depression, or we already touched on that in a certain sense? Sure, yeah. So treatment-resistant depression, uh, you know, it's defined differently in the literature, but the most common definition, I would say, is uh, someone who has uh, recurrent depression that has failed 
uh, two adequate trials of medication, uh, an adequate meaning it's been prescribed for a long enough period of time at a, an appropriate dosage. And a lot of times patients that fall into that category uh, struggle to respond to a third or a fourth medication. Um, and so there's, uh, again, other things such as interventional psychiatry that sometimes we'll turn to in those cases uh, in the appropriate patient um, to try to um, offer them something that uh, is, I'd say, new, novel, and also um, has a different mechanism of action than, than medication and therapy uh, to, to hopefully um, break that depression because the, the longer somebody's stuck in a depressive episode, often the harder it is to get them out. So we, wanna, we do want to treat depression, um, clinical depression, ag- aggressively. Mm-hmm. Do we know why that is, the longer that you're in a depression? Is it like a, I mean, a rut in a wheel rut in a, in a road, uh, or should we think about it differently, or how do you understand that? Yeah, I think it, it goes back to, uh, I guess, several things. Again, a complicated question. It goes back some to these networks, and again, it, it's hard to change networks. We simulate them repeatedly over weeks, and we can induce changes. Uh, and so when your brain is stuck in, let's say, a pathological network, um, it's not something that your brain uh, comes out of easily, and that, that's potentially related to various things, you know, uh, genetics, um, just your brain's chemistry. Um, so I think uh, uh, there's that. There's also a lot of psychosocial factors that factor into this. Some people that are in a chronic state of stress for various reasons, whether it's uh, mm-hmm. unstable housing, unstable food, um, not, no social support, that, that can also um, sometimes uh, not provide the person with an environment where they can heal and get better. Yeah. When we talk about brain injury, you, you were mentioning lesions a lot this half hour, but what about, you know, sports um, injuries that can tend to cause uh, uh, brain trauma? Is that also something that's included here? Sure. So, um, you know, the, the study I referenced does include people who have focal traumatic brain injuries. Um, and, uh, you know, absolutely, there's uh, a lot of, um, I'd say, uh, concussions and things like that in sports that are getting a lot of attention now for long-term cognitive, emotional side effects. And, um, uh, you know, this this study, I think, uh, again, gives us some correlates of areas of the brain that might put somebody at a, a higher risk for having um, symptoms post-injury. Uh, and, you know, these areas that we, we do see in the prefrontal cortex um, that, that uh, are often injured in concussions, um, in some cases, uh, we see as uh, theories that are popping up in our study. Yeah. When we talk about the brain, you're dealing with an organ here that unlike all the other organs in the body, we, I'm assuming we, we just don't understand a lot of it. It's, if it was a, a map of the world, it would be a map of the world that would be from several centuries ago with a lot of terra incognito, am I right there? And then we we are we are we we know a lot but we have a lot to learn absolutely uh you know this is like a, a tiny little flashlight in a giant room you know we're we're trying to gather these insights uh and again we have better and better tools to do it over time so i'm i'm very optimistic but uh it is a, a you know depression and a lot of these other network based illnesses anxiety um you know most psychiatric conditions are psychiatric because we don't know uh, all the causes that are contributing to them. We know a lot, but there's so much more to learn. Yeah. Here, here's an email question from one of our listeners, Dirk. He'd be interested to know how you sort out whether a brain injury has caused a clinical depression in a straightforward physical way, he puts it, 
from the possibility that living with symptoms like migraines, memory loss, brain fog, etc., he writes, can be depressing for an otherwise healthy person. I'm not sure I understand that, but do you get the point that Dirk is asking about? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So it's a very complicated thing because he's right in the sense when somebody has a brain injury, there's a lot of other things that that come with that beyond just, you know, a uh, changes in mood. And that could contribute to changes in mood. For example, somebody could develop like a hemiparesis where they uh, lose functioning on half of their body. They could develop various other, um, you know, uh, disabilities from a stroke or another brain injury that, that might put additional stress upon them. Um, and so, you know, we, we in our study, we do look at things like that, like did uh, cognitive symptoms um, explain th- these uh, brain regions we saw? So were these people only um, having increased depressive symptom burden because they also had worsened, worsened cognition? And we didn't see that. So these are, um, I, I'd say that's, that's certainly a very hard thing to control and confound. Um, and when you have more than 500 people collected over decades, we couldn't uh, ask mm-hmm. every single one what you know what what additional things were going on in their life, um, so so that's de- certainly something you know we think about and we did what we could in this study to try to control for that. Dr. Trapp, in the final minute, and we only have a minute, give us a sense of where all this is going in the future. How fast uh, for those suffering from from depression? What what are your hopes for the future? Yeah, so like I said, we have treatments that are working faster. Um, I think that's uh, very exciting for this field. We're we're learning more and more again about all these, I'd say at this point, correlates of depression. We know so much about the the pathophysiology. We just don't know what the the etiology of depression is. What what's causing all these downstream effects? We can pick up with uh, brain imaging and other um, other techniques. Um, so I think there's there's a whole bunch we're learning, and we're gonna. I think those things will eventually collide where the things we're learning about what causes depression, what contributes to depression, and these uh, improved neurotechnology-based treatments uh, will collide where we'll um, hopefully one day understand what's causing depression. I think that's going to lead to uh, you know, better and better therapies for it. Okay. University of Iowa psychiatrist Dr. Nicholas Trapp, uh, thank you for joining us this half hour. Thank you so much. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. That brings us to the end of this River to River. Uh, find out what's coming up on River to River by following me on Twitter at IPRBen. Today's program produced by Danny Gear and Caitlin Troutman, our executive producers, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.